It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. And good evening, I'm Clarence Boone and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. The Indiana University Social Justice in America series will host a citizen-oriented workshop facilitated by this year's national speaker, Ashley Woodard Henderson. Ms. Henderson identifies as an Afrolation or a black Appalachian working class woman born and raised in Southeast Tennessee. She is the co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee, formerly the Highlander Folk School. This community focused workshop will focus on the issues that are most pressing here in Bloomington to help us become a safer and more civil city. The uh, virtual workshop is scheduled for Wednesday, September 30, from 6 to 8 p.m. And joining Ms. Henderson will be Professor Lee Fuentes Rohr, a class of 1950 Herman B. Wells Endowed Professor at the IU Mauer School of Law. Also participating is Abby Ang, founder and lead organizer of No Space for Hate, a coalition of community members who confront and expose local white supremacist activities through education, direct action and community building. And the event will be moderated by Professor Janine Bell, a Richard S. Melvin Professor of Law at IU Maurer School of Law. She is nationally recognized as a scholar in the area of policing and hate crime. We are pleased to have Ms. Ashley Woodard Henderson join us this evening to discuss her role in the virtual workshop and accompanying virtual justice fair and an October 1st virtual town hall where the discussions will center upon issues of great concern, both locally and nationally, including voter suppression, gerrymandering, and the serious increase of hate-related incidents across the country. Ms. Henderson, welcome to Bring It On. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be on with you. Okay, Clarence has a question he's just uh, dying to ask you. It kept me up at night, said, you know, I was just wondering, I, I have to ask this question. Okay, in our introduction, we had, we uh, noted that you identify as Afrolation. Yep. And that uh, this is an individual who is Black and Appalachian. Can you please explain this characterization a little bit more? Mm-hmm. And then as a follow-up, how many Afrolations are there in the area where you reside? Oh, this is great. I love this question. So... Yeah, I put it on my bio intentionally because I think most times when people think about Appalachia, they think of white folks. They might think of the war on poverty and the the pictures and videos that they've seen. Um, They might think of old time and bluegrass music, which is usually equated with whiteness, even though the banjo is an instrument from the continent of Africa. Um, It wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the influence of, of black musicians in the South in particular and the, along the, the Appalachian Mountain Range, which is from Alabama to New York, right? So when I, when I put it in my bio, it was because I wanted folks to know that we exist, that there are Black people 
not only across the Appalachian mountain range, but very specifically in central Appalachia and East Tennessee and West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky and Southwest Virginia, um, because we exist in Western North Carolina, right? Like we are around and actually the long legacy of resistance in the South couldn't be what it is if it wasn't for some of the influence that black folks have had uh, in the Appalachian mountains. Um, so how many of us exist? Tons. Like y'all can't talk about what's happening in the movement for black lives right now without talking about Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor was murdered in Appalachia. Black folks all across Louisville have been standing up and saying that enough is enough and that we need justice, right? Even if we predated that and you go back to like the origins of the labor movement, you can't talk about the labor movement and not talk about the United Mine Workers and some of the work that was done even like before I was alive, uh, thinking about places like the March on Blair Mountain, the Battle at Blair, where it was like the first time since reconstruction that the US government used arms against its own citizens. Um, and that was a, a labor movement literally led by black miners in solidarity with like miners of lots of different ethnic origins because many of them were immigrants, uh, many of them were poor white folks that were literally getting paid in script, like paper that wasn't even money that they could only spend in company stores, right? So when I think about Appalachia, I think about like, yeah, sure. I definitely think that there's a long history of white supremacy and, and that there is uh, definitely a truth in the reality of concentrated poverty that was impactful to white folks. But when I also think about Appalachia, I think about Bessie Smith, the Empress of Blues. I think about Usher Raymond, who's from Appalachia. I think about like Venus Lacey, an Olympian basketball player, right? Like there's so many black, I think about the Afrolachian poets, right? That, that literally uh, are, are some of the most incredible artists that, that I know. I think of Nikki Giovanni, who is from East Tennessee. I think about folks like William Turner and, and all of the incredible scholars that have written about black Appalachians for centuries. So when I think about like the boring answer would be to give you the statistics of the numbers of who lives in East Tennessee and who lives in West, Western North Carolina and who lives in West Virginia, et cetera, et cetera. I think what's actually more fun is to have a conversation about the fact that like black people are everywhere. Black people are everywhere and there's nowhere that you can go where they don't exist and where they're not connected to a long legacy of resistance. Now in Appalachia, you know, as you started off, you said the image that comes to mind oftentimes, um, I'll just say it, uh, the Beverly Hillbillies did a lot to sort of set this sort of image in everyone's mind where you went out shooting for some food and up from the background comes a bubbling crew. But you know that that's a that's a stereotype that we have just destroyed the, today. Um, did blacks emerge in that area around the same time as whites emerged in that area, or what would I think you say? It's a good question. I mean, my my understanding of the history is that all of this country was indigenously stewarded, right? So, okay. Uh, depending on where you are along the mountain range, like the the first peoples of this land would have been. Uh, you know, Cherokees would have been other folks right. from indigenous communities. Um, so I, like, I think the story always and forever has to start there. I'm a person from mm -hmm. contested territory, uh, but people uh, typically recognize this land to have been generationally stewarded by the Cherokee nation. Um, and so that's who was here first, right? Um, but that's also not to say that there weren't black people here, right? Sure. Like, there's a long legacy. The Cherokees own slaves, some of them, right? So there's like a long history of free black people and enslaved black people in Appalachia. When I think about East Tennessee in particular, 
Uh, I think about a, a, a state that would have seceded from the Confederacy had Tennessee left the Union, right? Like Tennessee was actually a, a hotbed of folks that fought for abolition. In fact, people don't know this, but the first abolitionist newspaper was actually published in East Tennessee, in the first town in Tennessee, Jonesboro, right? So even the legacy of whiteness in Appalachia isn't always rooted in a history of white supremacy. It's it's rooted in a history of resistance to white supremacy in, in my state, and, and I think across the, the, the central Appalachian states in particular. Um, you know, a lot of white people, I think, I don't think it's by accident that what people think of is the Beverly Hillbillies. And mm -hmm. I say that as someone who identifies as a proud hillbilly. I'm country, mm -hmm. I love it, right? Um, you could be from a city in Appalachia and still be country, right? That, that's, the, that's the tenor of our culture. And so what I know for sure is that it is very intentional uh, that a particular narrative has been spun about who is Appalachian, just like a particular narrative has been spun about what is the South, right? Um, just like a very particular narrative gets spun about like who is a criminal in this country and who is not, who is powerful and who is not. Like, I think all of those narratives were very intentionally spun. Um, and so when I think about like what the leg, what the history of racial, relationships have been like in this region, absolutely, capitalism and white supremacy exist here like it exists everywhere, right? right? Like it exists everywhere, like it exists everywhere. And the more important story that we need to be remembering, literally rethreading because it's been stolen from us is the history of this radical resistance, this multiracial, usually led by targeted communities like low income, usually POC or black led, movements of resistance that have actually been what's changed the fervor of struggle in this country, right? So again, if we're talking about like movement for black lives, if you believe that black lives matter, you can't talk about that and not talk about the fact that like the largest United Negro Improvement Association chapter in the country was in Appalachia. You can't talk about like, I know there might be some lefties on the like listening in tonight, right? And if there are, you can't talk about like the thirties and the twenties work of the organized left and not talk about the fact that like the communist party had three headquarters in this country. One was in California, one was in New York and one was in central Appalachia, right? It was literally in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You can't talk about the Southern worker, right? And the history of like left progressive journalism independent of corporate journalism um, and not talk about the fact that it was published in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, and, and, and ironically, the funny story about that is that they forced a Klansman to print it, right? They were gonna out this white supremacist if he didn't you know, essentially publish this very progressive uh, interracially led newspaper. So I think that there's a long history, yes, of, of black people being in Appalachia. The Underground Railroad literally goes right through it, whether they were going up to Canada or south to Mexico, which also happened, right? Because it was the mountains. And I think that what's so beautiful about knowing that that history of like white folks Black folks, Indigenous folks, Latinx folks coming together across our differences to build a better world is that it literally, I think, is the salvation of this country, right? Like if 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 it is true that, and, and I believe that it is, that science is is just a matter of fact, right? That climate change is real. That Louisiana, for example, is losing more than a football field a day uh, to the to the to man-made climate disasters and the erosion of their borders, right? Very literally. If that is true, that California being impacted by fires and water is going to be, you know, literally changing the, the physical geography of their state, 
And that's going to be true up and down the West Coast. Same true for New York, right? And folks that are up in the, the, the northeastern corners of our country, that people are going to be coming inland over the next several generations. And as they do that, the history of this place is going to be not only critical to know as folks are coming inland, but I think it's also critical to know because it's literally these mountains that will save all of our people, right? It's the physical geography of Appalachia that I think will be so useful um, in surviving man-made climate change. I know that for sure because of the, the ice age, right? So again, it, like, I think so much of the, the important relevancy of learning the story of Appalachia is knowing that literally we are in the most biodiverse hardwood forest in the Western hemisphere. And that that happened because of these mountains, right? So mm -hmm. the long story short is you should know about it because it's literally the place that is consistently leading social movements. And it's literally gonna be physically the place that brings us all together. And if you've just joined us, I have just put a pause on Miss Ashley Lee Woodard Henderson, who is leading a very stimulating discussion on the origins of Appalachians, Blacks and Appalachia but she is also the co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee. And you have just confirmed my desire to ask that question. I told you in the front <laughs> end that I stayed up most of the night wanting to ask that question uh, of the origins of the concept of Afrolatia. And it just goes to, to show that uh, we're everywhere. We're Look everywhere. everywhere. And also joining us um, is another phenomenal woman that uh, will be taking part in the series, and that is M Dr. Amrita Myers, who is one of the co-organizers of this event. And you know why I can say that, because your handprints are all over this. So, But nevertheless, we do thank you for joining us today. And she'll be chiming in as we go through this conversation uh, with Ms. Ashley Woodard Henderson, who is the keynote speaker uh, for the September 30 kickoff for the Social Justice in America series. And this is the fourth year for that, Emreeder? It is, it is. And we are incredibly um, humbled, honored, and delighted that, um, that Ashley Woodard Henderson is our national speaker this year. And um, I call her Ash because we, we've known each other for a while. So you'll forgive me if I fall back into calling her that because it's hard for me to call her Ashley because I, I call her Ash. But um, Ash is going to be doing a couple of things for us. She's going to be um, headlining a organizing activist workshop for us the evening of September 30th from 6 to 8 p.m. And then she will be the keynote speaker at the town hall defending democracy on Thursday evening, October the 1st, also from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, and that evening we'll have three speakers, Abby Ang, who's the founder of No Space for Hate right here in Bloomington, which has been leading the resistance to get rid of white supremacists at our local farmer's market um, for the last year and a half. And Professor Luis Fuentes Rauer, who is a professor in the Maurer School of Law at Indiana University. And he's a specialist in minority voting rights. And he has written books, articles, and op-eds on voter suppression and gerrymandering. And of course, as we head into this very contentious presidential election, that's gonna be something that we need to be thinking about quite, um, you know, really in a focused way. Ash can speak to all of these things, white supremacy, the rise of the alt-right, voter suppression. The Highlander has been at the heart of these and other issues for you know, close to a hundred years now in, in so many ways. People go to the Highlander for training on LGBTQ issues, environmental you know, justice issues, 
voter suppression, civil rights in writ large. So we couldn't think of anybody better to come and speak to us um, on all of these issues as we sit. We had invited her over a year ago and we had no idea going into 2020 that we would be sitting in the middle of a massive pandemic and that we would have come, that we would be in the midst of this massive national racial crisis that erupted this summer with Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, Drejan, I mean, so many names, again, added to an already huge list of names that have been compiling for years for those of us that have been doing BLM, Movement for Black Lives work for a long time as Ash has. And so we're, we're super, super excited. We're also gonna be running um, a, a voter registration drive, both online and physically on campus, as well as a virtual social justice tabling fair with community organizations and campus groups. Um, and that actually, the, the, the social justice fair will actually kick off in the afternoon um, of September the 30th. The voter registration drive will start on Tuesday the 29th. So it's actually gonna be a whole week of events. The voter registration drive will be on Tuesday the 29th, the Justice Fair, and then the activist workshop that Ash will be leading on the 30th, and then the town hall with Abby Luis and Ash on the 1st. So Social Justice in America series has a whole slew of events ready for you as we think about defending democracy, because clearly as we've seen, it is seriously under attack and it is up to all of us to think about these things, be in conversation about these things, but then more importantly, become activated and get involved to actually do things. It's not just about talking, but to get activated as engaged members of our communities on campus and throughout the country. It is about voting, but beyond just voting, how can we get involved coalition building on the ground to make significant changes, not just in 2020, but beyond so that we can build a better future to make this country the, the country that we need for it to be and that we want for it to be. Well, thank you, Dr. Myers. And a little bit later on in this broadcast, we'll give our listeners information on how to virtually sign up to take part in this uh, community-based virtual experience that you don't want to miss. William? So, Ashley, uh, I'll, I'll continue to call you Ashley. I don't know you as well as Professor Myers, but you were absolutely right in something you said earlier that when people um, think about Appalachia, that they typically think of white folks. Uh, that said, I almost feel a little bit ashamed to be so fascinated by the one black person that I know from, from that area, because like you said, black people are everywhere. But with regard to some of the issues that uh, Amrita just mentioned, social unrest, uh, the criminal justice system, uh, are there any, how would you compare to the, the area where you grew up compared to what we've been hearing around the rest of the country? Yeah, I mean, I think that the South and the Midwest or America under a microscope, you could see all of the intersecting crises um, really starkly in the places that I grew up in. From what I'm learning about Bloomington, it doesn't feel incredibly different, right? That we have white supremacists, white nationalists and paramilitary forces that are literally grabbing for power, both like literally physically taking up space and running for elected offices. That sounds to be what's happening in Bloomington. Uh, we are impacted disproportionately black people, um, women, poor people, um, and otherwise targeted communities are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Also sounds like as a, as a place where folks are coming in and out very often that Bloomington is seeing similar issues, right? Like 
like patriarchy, capitalism, right? Like all of those issues exist where I live and exist uh, everywhere else. And but what I what I would say very specifically in regards to like some of the stuff that Amrita raised is that like these the uprisings of 2020 were across the board, right? Literally in all 50 states and 18 different countries. 350 million, approximately 350 million people have been in the streets over the last 100 days, right? And what that looks like in places that are rural is still just as impactful as like 10,000 people in the streets in New York, right? What it means to see hundreds and thousands of people in the streets across hollers and hoods all over the South, Appalachia included, uh, has been transformative. And what's real is that if we think about like historically where these fights have started, it's been in the South. But if we look at look at this under like especially these racial justice uprisings over the last six years, we've seen many of them sparked by who I would call the children of the Great Migration, Black folks in the Midwest, right? Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri, which you know I argue is the South, but my friends that live in St. Louis might argue is the Midwest, right? I would say it's below the Mason-Dixon line, like the three-fifths compromise, um, but whatever. Uh, the Missouri compromise, but whatever. So, you know, that's Midwest or not, right? But what we can definitely not argue is that like Wisconsin, right? Like, you know, when I think about like Madison and the work that young people have been doing over there, when I think about fighting against white supremacists at the farmer's market in Bloomington, uh, you know, when I think about the Black Visions Collective, you know, there's been, throwing down uh, since George Floyd was murdered. Um, it's, been, it's been children of the great migration, people whose grandmamas and granddaddies and mamas and aunties and uncles and, and siblings uh, literally moved from the South to flee Jim Crow. I think about the comrades in Chicago who fought like literal torture in detention centers and by police officers. I think about Charlene Carruthers, one of the great scholars of our time and all of the work that she's done to encourage social movements to really center black queer feminism. So I think there's a long history of relationship between Southerners and folks in the Midwest who have been making the impossible possible um, through fighting for social justice. And, and the last thing that I would say is that we don't live single issue lives y'all, right? So what, what I'm seeing where I live and all across this country and internationally is people actually making the connections between intersecting global crises right? People talk about the global pandemic that is COVID-19, but it wasn't the only pandemic that was impactful to Black people in Appalachia or Black people in the South or Black people anywhere else, right? The, the, the crisis and the pandemic that is COVID-19 was only exasperated by the, the global pandemic of white supremacy, the global pandemic of rising authoritarianism and fascism, the rising pandemic of, you know, capitalism, and economies that are not good for the people or our planet, right? So I think that what I'm seeing in my region and I'm seeing relationally happening all across the country is people saying enough is enough, that our liberation is directly and intimately connected to each other, that if you're not free, I'm not free, and I'm willing to put my body and my money and my politics and I'm, I'm ready to practice what I preach around practicing collective liberation. And I think that that's actually gonna be what's required to answer some of the other things uh, that, that Amrita raised around like what it looks like to actually defend democracy in a 2020 context. 
right? But this is a moment where it's all hands on deck, no sharp elbows. We need everybody coming together with every gift that they have to be able to fight for the America that we deserve. I'm Rita. Um, as a professor of history, and especially with all the focus that, that you have on Black history, what, what are your thoughts on some of the things uh, that Ashley just talked about? No, I, I very much affirm everything that Ash just said. I think that 2020, people keep saying, what makes this moment different? Why does it feel so different? Um, because we, I, I just feel like, I mean, and I agree, I think that we are seeing something unique in this moment because folks who have been alive long enough to have seen the uprisings of the 60s are even saying that this is not the same. And it isn't the same. We are seeing folks of different ethnic backgrounds from different even socioeconomic backgrounds rise up and come together in ways that have never actually happened before. And as a historian, and really, I mean, Ash is a historian too. I mean, she has a fierce understanding and intimate knowledge of the workings of history like no one, right? I mean, especially of Southern history. But if when you look at the history of this country and when you look at who has, you know, who has been doing the work um, on the ground for a long time, and when you look here in, in the Midwest or you know, in the upper South, right? And I mean, Missouri is the South. I'm sorry, it was a slave state. I always maintain this and I argue with people about it, but I will hold that ground as a, as a scholar of slavery, right? People in the Midwest, in the South, this region that has often been overlooked, right? Where all of this work, you look at Minneapolis, you look at Wisconsin, you look at Louisville, we're sandwiched in between Indianapolis and Louisville where all of this, I mean, this has been a hotbed of protest for, for pushing four months now. This, this is a very, very different moment. I think because of climate change, I think because of COVID, I think, I mean, the racial violence has been ongoing for a long time, but even amongst my own students, what I'm seeing is this generation of people, of young people, um, who are working class, who are impoverished, are actually who are from rural areas, are actually breaking away from their families, breaking away from their parents and grandparents, and they are the ones who are saying enough is enough, right? And they are saying, we want something better, we want something different. COVID has made a difference. Hunger, homelessness, climate change, they have actually seen disaster written on the wall, and they are saying, we don't we refuse to have this be our future. We need something different. We don't want this anymore. And this, that is what makes this time and moment so different, right? That we see young working class whites, poor whites, who actually come out of very, very racist backgrounds, right? Recent, racist genealogies. And they are the ones who are saying, we are willing to put our bodies on the line. We're willing to put right, our futures on the line and say that we want a different America, we want a different future. And so you have Asian, Asian Americans, Latinx folks, young white people who are being radicalized in ways that we haven't seen before. And you actually also have older folks who are coming out for the first time. You, you even see on what I'm seeing on social media is evangelical whites who have never spoken up for Black Lives Matter, not when Tamir Rice was murdered even, who are actually saying Black Lives Matter, who are coming out to protest, coming out to march pastors and preachers who I've never seen on my social media speaking up for BLM, speaking up for BLM. 
COVID has shifted things radically, hunger, homelessness, unemployment. People were trapped at home and they had time to think and see and feel in a way that they never had before. We, and that is why I'm saying that this moment is different in a way that it's not, for us, it's not, it's not different. But for whole other demographics of this country, it has been an awakening. And that is why I'm like, that's why I'm saying and for many, many people, they're like, oh, I was like, it's not that I was like, why now? Well, because, like I said, we've got all of these things that are happening. Literally, the world is on fire. I mean, California and Oregon, I mean, the world is on fire, folks. And many of us have known that it's on fire. And so I, I just really feel like I mean, it is it is our chance. It is our time. This is not like the 60s, but it is our civil rights movement. And it's a it's a it's time for us to actually rise up and make make the changes that we need. I mean, Afrofuturism is is I mean, I've been reading it for a long time, but my students are rising up in ways that I've never even seen here at a predominantly white institution. A historically white institution and they are they're becoming radicalized in ways that in 15 years I've never even seen. Let me let me pose a question to you both. You, you mentioned uh, something of, of interest where you see a, a movement continuing not starting but continuing with youth and young adults. Um, mm -hmm. Several years back with uh, the recent spate of uh, school shootings, uh, youth just flooded the streets. They were signing up to vote. And in 2018, we saw the first initial wave of a voter, voter turnout and, and change in the, um, the legislature as a result, both local and nationally. Okay, my question is, has this been a sustained wave? And I think COVID-19, I think concerns over climate issues, I think 45 uh, to recent shootings has done more to, I would assume, ignite or reignite the passions of youth to not only take it to the street as they've been demonstrating, but also to take it to the ballot box, uh, to, the, to, the, to the voter booth. Do you see that? Do you hear that in your classes and, and, and the, the spheres that you both operate within? Do you think that November 3rd or leading up to November 3rd, we're gonna see a, a wave of enthusiasm, which will translate into record voting totals, which will translate into, dare I say something close to a landslide of a decision by America? <laughs> I think this is a, is a fascinating question. And I think that anybody that told you absolutely that they know the answer to it would be lying to you. Um, I think that nothing is promised in this moment. Because, and let me tell you why. I don't think it's because I don't have faith that young people will vote. Young people always, they've been getting it right. Black women have been getting it right, right? Like that, that I'm not confused about the electorate. The thing that feels challenging is, are we investing to make sure that folks vote actually gets counted, right? For all the people that are living in spaces where melon votes could be a thing, like, which is awesome, and that should be the case, like, people should be able to mail in ballots, especially during a global pandemic, but making sure that those ballots get counted is going to be critical, right? Making sure that folks actually can go and vote and that their vote isn't suppressed, right? And I don't just mean by the state, even though like absolutely the state suppresses the vote of our people, like period. Um, let me tell you, I was in Georgia when I saw an election be stolen from Stacey Abrams, who should have been the acting governor of Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. 
So I can tell you I've seen it. In fact, the guy that is currently the governor of Georgia was the secretary of state who was governing the election that he ultimately won, right? Like I, I saw the voter registration forms that had to be mailed to Brian Kent, right? Um, so I know that the state suppresses votes, but what's also real is so do white supremacists, right? I can tell you about this, the horror stories that I heard in North Carolina, which is going to be absolutely vital to the election and on the federal level. I can tell you the stories about folks seeing truck beds, flatbeds coming through election precincts and, and like with nooses and, 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 and Confederate flags, right? I can tell you the stories of people seeing white supremacists trailing people after they voted back to their homes, right? I can tell you the stories, right? They exist. That was true in the 60s and the 50s and the 70s and it's true right now. Voter suppression is a concern. Right. So it's not that I don't think young people like March for Our Lives, those young people have been amazing. Those young people have been like learning with and from the movement for Black Lives. Right. They they knew how to do some of this stuff because some of us have been doing it. And we were in relationship with those folks in Florida. I think about the Dream Defenders and all the work that they had been doing. I think about Power You and all the work that they had been doing. Right. So I think that young people are going to vote. Absolutely. But what I know and what what lots of young people know is that it's not that simple. People have won, like people have had landslide turnout, won the popular vote and still lost the election, right? We're not stupid. <laughs> we know that the electoral college exists and is a problem uh, when talking about what defending democracy looks like. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we need to be real with each other that not only is COVID-19 gonna make the conditions different, the organization of white supremacist, nationalists and paramilitary forces makes this election different, the savviness in which the state has learned how to do voter suppression, whether it was through voter ID laws or like, you know, weird shit around this, the, the navigating of the, of, the, the, the ballot boxes in local precincts and early voting and on election day voting. I think that we just need to be real with our people that there's things that they need to do right now. They need to get registered to vote right now. They need to plan to early vote and go with each other, right? And let's let's pick and all like if you live in a state where you can vote anywhere in your in your district during early voting, let's all decide we're gonna have a party at the polls day and we're all gonna go together and we're all gonna make sure everybody gets home safely, right? Let's be prepared to make sure that we know who to call to make sure that our vote went through, right? Can you call your secretary of state and say, hey, did you get my ballot? I voted early, I wanna make sure my vote got counted, right? And then on election day in November. Can we be intentional about telling our folks that, you know, we might not know the results that night. The, 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 the traditional like election night and we wait all up till like midnight and then we get the results and we know who won, that might not be how it goes down this time, right? And so if it doesn't, we need to make sure that there are places that people can go like the Movement for Black Lives to make sense of what's happening and to get information about what you can do to defend democracy and how to do it, right? And so I think that's gonna be, when I think about what's happening right now and what's going to happen, I absolutely think young people and black women are gonna to continue to do the right thing because we've been doing that. Um, but I do think that the context in which we're voting is very, very different than we've ever experienced in my lifetime or maybe in the history of this country. And I think what defending democracy in this moment looks like is gonna to have to be innovative um, I think we're going to have to be patient and I think we're going to have to be insistent that democracy actually happens in November. Uh, I, I want to give you 30 seconds to talk about 
apathetic, cynical individual who doesn't plan to vote because in their mind, their vote doesn't count. Take it away. I mean, I get it. Voting isn't the only path to liberation. But what my ancestors and elders said was by any means necessary means by all the means, including the tactic of voting. So if you believe in the movement for Black Lives, vision for Black Lives policy platform or the BREATHE Act, um, I need you to vote because the people that actually decide on that get elected, right? If you are mad because you and your grandmama and them didn't get a stimulus check, guess what? There were people in elected, there are people in elected office that are responsible for that and they continuously are failing us. $1,200 when I'm unemployed and living in some of the most expensive places in the world to be, right? Guess who makes those decisions? Elected officials, right? If you're mad that, that the National Guard got deployed in a community where people were protesting police violence, you should be upset because the people that encouraged that and the people that demanded that, that could make that happen are people that get elected. If you're mad about the budget in your community, the tax dollars that you're spending going to stuff that is harmful to communities and not helpful to communities, I need you to vote because the people that make that decision our elected officials, right? Now, that doesn't mean that's the only thing I need you to do. If you don't like, if you don't like the state, if you don't like voting, if you're if you're like frustrated because you feel like it's just reform, I need you to I need you to help me build the alternatives too. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, my life literally depends on you getting this vote right. <laughs> it literally does. So if you can't do it because it's morally the right thing to do or because like, you know, you think it actually matters, I get that. But I need you to do it so that we know that we didn't concede any tactical intervention that could help us get Black people and otherwise targeted and marginalized communities free in our lifetime. Ma'am Rita, I, I know you want to get in there, and we need you to do exactly that. Um, so after you respond to Ashley's comments, I have a question for you. Okay. No, and I would just agree. I mean, I always say that voting isn't the only thing, right? It's We have to hit this many-headed hydra with multiple tactics, but... Um, I mean, Ash just articulated it beautifully. And I was just thinking about the fact that they are trying to take away our vote by so many different means, which proves to us how important our vote actually is, right? That they're they're trying so hard to take it away from us. I mean, not giving absentee, you know, not allowing mail-in ballots, trying to take away polling stations, right? Just so many different ways. So, I mean, I was just thinking about that as she was speaking. Um, so absolutely, I think it's very, very critical that we vote, but it's not the only thing that we should be doing. That's why, that's why the Justice Fair is so such an important key factor in the events that we're holding this year, because there's so many different ways that you can get involved to participate and become actively engaged, you know, in the community. But like Ash said, right, voting, like, well, my, my very good friend Dana Black says, voting is the least that you can do, but this year it's incredibly critical. But one thing that I would say is that people put year after year, they, a lot of people only show up once every four years to vote. And that is a really problematic philosophy yeah. in my opinion, because we have so many local races that are incredibly important on a day-to-day basis. The people that we elect to school board, right, to our, you know, to our municipal offices, have a direct impact on our daily lives. And often those races have very low voter turnout and can be decided by a handful of votes. And these folks are passing budgets that have a huge impact on our day-to-day existence. And the, the I mean, people are in, in school board races or city council races, these elections are being decided by 
three, four or five votes often. Um, so I would just say to you this year, any year, it is critical that you go out, that you know what the issues are, that you know who your candidates are. BLM B-Town puts out a voter's guide. We don't tell you who to vote for, but we tell you who the candidates are, what their platforms are, what they stand for, so that you can make an educated decision um, on where people stand and how you can vote, right? It is the least you can do, but it is really a significant thing that you can do for yourself, for your community, for your nation. And then because they decide how money gets spent, they decide, right, who's gonna get that check. They decide about schooling issues for your kids, taxation, all kinds of things. So when you grumble later on about all kinds of things, you're if you didn't vote, well, you've actually made a decision about all kinds of things by not voting, then later on you're grumbling. So you need to have that voice. You can also get involved by deciding to run actually at the local level. There's all kinds of things you can do. So I'm, I'm really, really, if you are upset about the electoral college system, let me tell you my friend, so am I. But if you want to actually change things on that larger scale, you must then get involved at the very beginning and help build from the ground up. That is what I need to tell you. And for our listeners, we are speaking with Ashley Woodard Henderson, co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee. Also joining us is Professor Amrita Myers, a professor of history at Indiana University. Um, did I want to ask it, did any of you see the town hall with that president a couple of nights ago? And there was one sister who stood up and asked him a question, and, and this is going uh, viral right now. He attempted to interrupt her and she shut him down. And in an interview after that, I heard her saying that she had not planned on voting. And then she says uh, that same night she was uh, riding home and the taxi driver was from Turkey, I think it was. And he was an immigrant and he was uh, passionate about voting for the first time. And he communicated that to her and that's what changed her mind. But I think you already uh, commented uh, somewhat on people who don't vote, but what do you say to people like her? She's an educated woman, a professor at a well-known university and she had not planned on voting. She's in a position of uh, prominence and you could even say leadership. So who, I mean, she has to have some influence on maybe students or younger people, anybody in her circles. What do you say to people like that? Listen, I believe strongly in, in telling no lies and claiming no easy victories, right? And so, you know, I'm never gonna lie to you. Um, I know what it's felt like to be a person that was told that like, my, that your ancestors died so you could vote. It's like, my ancestors died for me to be free. Voting was one way to get to that, right? What I also know is that we keep telling people to vote, that their vote counts, right? But then they see Stacey Abrams see, like have an election stolen. They see, you know, Hillary Clinton win the popular vote and, and 45 become the president. They saw, they remember hanging chads. They might've been babies, but they remember that. They remember their parents being stressed out about some random thing that was happening in Florida that they didn't understand, right? So if you are like, I just don't get it. I don't get why it matters and nothing else that me and Amrita have said has moved you to it. I get it, I understand it. But what I know for certain, and like, and I'm not even gonna tell you that if you don't vote, you don't get to complain. You do actually. But what I'm telling you is that literally lives are dependent 
democracy is dependent mm -hmm. in this moment on us being able to control the playing field that we fight in, right? We have to do it, right? We are, this isn't one of those situations where it's just like the lesser of evils is like a little bitty tiny difference. So it doesn't really matter. We shouldn't really be engaged. That is not the case. We are really literally trying to save this country from fascism and authoritarianism. Yes. What does that mean, Ashley? Because those are big words that like academics throw around all the time and I don't know what that means. Well, let me tell you, it literally means like one person in this country having the power to be able to do whatever he wants. And we know that what he wants is total control, total control, implementing really ridiculous things that are harmful to whole swaths of our communities, right? So it literally is making a decision, like you not voting this round, like most times I'd be like, you know, I don't know dog, but this round, if I didn't, like, I'm just gonna be 100 with you. Whether you don't ever vote or you just don't think this one's important, I'm telling you that literally lives are on the line this round. And let I me tell you how that. I know. Yeah. Just yeah. real quick, let me tell you how I know. Is that it was, it was under this presidency that nearly 200,000 US residents have died because of COVID-19 when he was saying that, that it really didn't matter, that it wasn't deadly. Mm -hmm. Y'all remember those conversations in January? Yep. Right? It was literally under his leadership that we watched, and I'm not saying that this didn't happen under other presidents, but I'm saying we literally in this presidency saw children, in detention centers, separated from their families. This man used our money to build a wall at the border of Mexico, right? But wouldn't spend money to, to help us get a vaccine to stop COVID. We've seen massive unemployment. While he takes credit for the, the generations of development of this economy to get us to a place where people were employed, now we're seeing mass unemployment. Mm -hmm. He, he, get, he, he signed a check that he didn't even have the authority to give you the money from for $1,200 but hasn't pushed for a people's bailout but would absolutely bail out banks and multinational corporations during this moment. What I know for certain is that Black Lives Matter isn't a partisan issue. It's not. But the, like literally fighting to defend democracy is something that we have to do right now. So I need, I absolutely implore you all of you that can vote to literally to take it seriously. It doesn't take a lot of time. Right? We can we can do it in ways that feel like it builds community power because it can, right? That's why it's bigger than just your vote. If all you have the capacity to do is just that because you're trying to defend democracy, awesome. Do that. But if you need to have it connected to a power building strategy, then organize your community to go do it and to follow it up with actually holding elected officials accountable. That's how you build power. Yes. Right. If we if you want to build a community that doesn't have to be dependent on voting, then build the alternative. Start learning about people's movement assemblies and other ways to govern our own communities ourselves. Right. All of that can happen and none of that has to be antithetical to each other. I, I want to shift things to a, a woman's issue. And can I just that has that, that has to be hitting if, just just real, and I want to get your comment on this too, uh, Amrita, but this is this new revelation that, that is coming out about this Nazi Dr. Mengele genocidal experimentation happening at the ice holding centers mm. where women are being given hysterectomies yeah. Yeah. Uh, unbeknownst to them. Uh, if this isn't a, a modern day form of, of something that went, went on back in the 40s, then nothing is. Mm -hmm. They're in detention. 
and then having to undergo this. Your thoughts on that? And then, and Rita, I'd like to get your thoughts on it as well. Immigrant women. Well, but this is exactly why I'm saying that it is so critical that we continue what we're doing both in the streets and in the ballot box because there's money for prison camps, right? There's money for forced sterilization and medical experimentation, but there's no money for a National Health Care Act. There's no money, right? There's money for war, but there's no money for education, right? There's always money for diabolical right? Weapons of mass destruction for going overseas and killing black and brown people. There's always, you know, there's money to set up, you know, prison camps on our border and to harm, you know, immigrant people who are also black and brown, by the way. There's money to put more police into neighborhoods that are filled with black and brown people, right? But there's no money for education. There's no money for health care. You know, what is being done is nothing short of systemic genocide, Right. That's, it's genocide here within the borders of the United States and it's genocide overseas against black and brown people. It's extermination, plain and simple. Right. When I when I'm reading about what's potentially happening in these prison camps and that is exactly what's, what they are. It is exactly what was happening in the Japanese internment camps. It's what was I mean, it's shades of Tuskegee syphilis experiment. This I mean, as a historian, it is exactly I mean, it's the kind of things that were being, the experiments that were being perpetrated against people who were considered to have low IQ in the United States, stretching back over a hundred years. Anyone that was considered, the Nazis ran the same kinds of experiments and the same kinds of things in the concentration camps and in Germany, even before the camps, right? Any demographic that was considered to be undesirable, whether they were Jewish, whether they were LGBTQ, whether they were the Romani, right? The people who were called the gypsies, any group that was considered undesirable was sterilized and then put into camps and then eventually exterminated. This is why, again, it circles back to why does it matter to cast your ballot? Because when we're headed towards an autocratic fascist regime, this is what happens. When you put power into the hands of people who have no ethical conscience, they can do whatever they want. And whatever they want means any group that stands up to them, that they don't like, that they consider a threat to their power structure, they can round up, they can put into prison camps, and they and they can exterminate who they could because, and you know what, it starts with people, it starts by taking away freedom of the press, which we've already seen happen in this country under this regime, right? 45 has attacked the press that he doesn't like. It starts by shutting, shutting down educators and professors and teachers who teach things that they don't like it starts by shutting down books and articles that they don't approve of. And then it starts by putting people into prison camps and then taking away their ability to reproduce, right? And then extermination. I can't, I'm, I'm not even trying to be an alarmist. I'm simply telling you what history has already shown us happened time and time again. And it is already starting here. And this is, I mean, Ash has already said it. There have been times in the past where people have said, I'm not gonna vote. This is not a time to sit and say and be ambivalent. You must vote. And then if you say, well, I don't like the candidates, nobody's really exciting. You know what? You wanna set up alternative systems. You wanna create something that's better and you know, you know, than what you see now, great. 
let's talk about other systems and other ways and other, you know, transformative justice and things that we can do that to make this country better. But this is something that we, I mean, I kid you not, we cannot, we cannot sit still when we see our, our, this country literally sliding into the abyss. Yeah, we're not um, voting for our hero. We're voting for our target. <laughs> we're you. voting for our target, right? We're not voting for a savior. We're voting for who we will be pushing to give us the things that we demand. So yeah. I agree, Amrita. I think that uh, a couple of really quick points. One is that, you know, this isn't just a women's issue. Lots of kinds of people, regardless of their gender, can get pregnant. And what we've been seeing is, is like a, a history of shackled, pre like pregnant people having babies in these prison camps. Um, what we've seen at like the organization that I used to work for, Project South Institute for the Elimination of Poverty and Genocide, is actually who's representing the whistleblower in Georgia. Um, and uh, along with like GLAR and Georgia Detention Watch, um, these incredible organizations have come together to make sure that we're fighting this. And again, it's like it, it should matter to all people, not just women, uh, cisgendered women. Um, and it's not just cisgendered women that are being impacted by this this act of of reproductive injustice. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think it's a critical thing for us to be talking about here. And I do think that it's intimately connected to this thing around paying attention to what's happening uh, in relationship to the present that is also historic, like Amrita said, in regards to watching the, the, the chapters of fascism, right? There actually is a, a, a particular strategy around the implementation of fascist, fascist practices. Um, Jarish Dixon wrote a really incredible article about the stages of fascism, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, they, have a game, they have a game plan, right? And the game plan is not innovative. It is something that they do over and over and over again, y'all. And so I think that now that we know what their game plan is, our role is to not normalize that. It is not normal. It should not be normal for, for walls to get built to defend borders. It should not be normal for the National Guard to be turned out against civilians. It should not be normal that, you know, a doctor and literally a prison camp, a, a plantation, legally a plantation, right? Like y'all have seen the, the documentary 13, right? We know that slavery was only abolished up to criminalization, right? So if that's the case, that shouldn't be normal. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be normal. And I think that part of the, the 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 thing that has has moved so many people to being dis dis uh enfranchised for sure but like also like not excited about implementing the tactic of voting is because we've normalized voter suppression we've normalized that like this this system is messed up but it's just broken we just need to fix it like no the system is working exactly as it was designed to which is to dishearten people is to defeat people and to make them feel like they can't win y'all and this is a moment where we absolutely can win we've made what was impossible yesterday possible today with the movement for black lives and i think that it is really really critical that we not just like get numb to this stuff and when we do that we have colleagues and comrades around us that can say you know what this is not normal what you're going through and this is how you can do something about it well, you know, as, as always, and I said this on the front end, that time is going to fly. I, I, we said this offline, and it's the case. But what I do want to say before we go any further, in the month of October, try to arrange another part two conversation. I want to have a conversation before the election uh, to talk a little bit about um, what has going on to date. Um, so I'd like to get you both involved with that again, if possible. 
one. Okay, I want to just insert one thing before we wrap up. And I do want to ask you ladies to join us again sometime in the month of October before the election for a part two. We're just uncovering some issues here. And there's another day in America, there's always some new thing that's going on. And, and I think the electorate is weary just with that one point, the fact that there's always something going on that is just really taxing our psyche. But nevertheless, we have put a pen in today's conversation. We're looking so much to the conversations on September 30th and October 1st, and that whole week, actually, of activities. We want to thank Ashley, uh, Ashley Woodard Henderson, co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee, for joining us to discuss her work with the Highlander Research and Education Center and the upcoming IU Social Justice in America series, scheduled for September 30th through October 1st. To get more information and to register for this virtual, virtual event, go to diversity.iu.edu slash S-J-A-S. Again, diversity.iu.edu slash S-J-A-S. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we would love to hear them. Send your emails directly to our volunteer staff at bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address, once again, bring it on at wfhb.org. And also, if you have an event or happening that the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring On staff. Again, that email address is bringon at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Cade Young. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone, and be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.